Aaron. This is Paul. And this is Wayne. Welcome, gentlemen. It's it's an exciting week. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week. Really? Well, mostly yeah. because I want to talk about Superman Year One when we get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, see, you know, when I, when I think about this podcast, Paul, I rarely look forward to talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, ah, Saturday morning. I'd really I mean, like to is, start drinking. This is court-appointed community service. You know, this is what this is. <laughs> Not that we get in the way of the drinking. Of the yeah, I ran, o- day ran over a hobo and I got sentenced to doing this podcast <laughs> for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard time, pal. It's hard time. <laughs> well, you know, we have a lot of DC related stuff to talk about today. Uh, but before we got into it, I wanted to talk to you guys about the the big there's like two big Spider-Man news articles that came out this week. Um, I don't know if you saw. Yeah, I, I, I did see that. I, 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 saw, I saw it because you put it on our Instagram feed. Uh huh. And, Look at and, you looking and, at our Instagram. I know it's crazy, right? I mean, yeah. I'm always surprised. You ever since you and I started sharing uh, responsibilities there, I'm always surprised that oh, somebody else posts to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, t- tell us about it, Paul. Well, there's two things the, to talk about, but um, the first is Marvel had a countdown on their um, social media, and it was very Spider-Man related. It was a Spider-Man webbed number four, and people are like, oh, what is this advertising? And then the next day, there was a three. And they're like, okay. So it's, you know, clearly a countdown to something. And the countdown was to a new Spider-Man number one miniseries, um, not not an ongoing, uh, co-written by director J.J. Abrams with his son Henry Abrams, with art by Sarah Pacelli. Uh, you know, they, Marvel has courted J.J. Abrams to do a Spider-Man miniseries, to write a Spider-Man miniseries for them, which, uh, you know, I'm I'm intrigued by. You know, J.J. Abrams, now let's be honest, it's his son who's writing the book, not J.J. Well, I'm but, sure it's one of those, hey, Dad, I sure would like to write, write a comic book. Yeah, <laughs> and J.J.'s <laughs> like, well, Disney owes me a favor because I directed right. two big Star Wars movies for them. That's right. I'm I'm kind of a big deal over there at the House of Ideas. So, yeah. uh, you know, the House of the Mouse. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm 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 intrigued. Yeah, I'm you know, I'm curious to see where it goes. It's funny because JJ Abrams is you know, he's a great director, mm-hmm. but I mean, typically other people write the right. the movies that he directs. Um right. so, you know, his his writing skills, I I'm not I mean, I'm sure he has an ongoing uh direction of the story, but as far as actual writing, We'll see. You know, it's it's an yeah. intriguing story. I'm yeah. curious if it's going to be related to like the current ongoing books, or if it's going to be an out of continuity story. You know, is this just a this is J.J. Abrams Spider Man story, or is it this is J.J. Abrams writing Spider Man as he currently is in the books? I would imagine that this is an out of continuity story. I don't think they're going to make J.J. Abrams work within the confines of whatever Nick Spencer's doing. Not Nick Spencer. Yeah, Nick Spencer on yeah, Amazing Spider Man. Which Spencer's doing some really great things, but I like the I like these type of stories that are outside of that, just to the core of the character. Well, you're about to get two of them, because in addition to the J.J. Abrams Spider-Man book, there will be a brand there as part of Marvel's ongoing 80th anniversary one shots. They are going to be doing Amazing Spider-Man going big number one that will team up. Eric Larson, Mark Bagley, and others, um, with Eric Larson and Jerry Conway doing the writing on the book. That cover, that cover art they teased this week was pretty hot. Yeah, yes. I am so excited about this book. I, mean, I am too. 
bringing these creators back together for a Spider-Man story, uh, I'm happy. Now, don't get me wrong. Eric Larson's art nowadays is nowhere near the level of... of He was a lot... I guess, you know, back in the day... <laughs> he was tighter. He, he was tighter. tighter. He was definitely tighter. He has a much looser, quicker style nowadays. And I think yeah. that's because he writes colors, inks. Yeah, it's because he does letters. the whole schmear on, on uh, what, Savage Dragon? Savage Dragon, yeah. Yeah, and, and I get it. You know, you're you're getting a book out, and kudos to him. He does that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, hopefully they'll give him an inker and a colorist and all of that. And, you know, the, the, the artwork will tighten up for yeah. the book. But regardless, I'm excited. You know, at, at seeing those guys... You know, the, the Spider-Man of the 90s, that's my Spider-Man, early 90s, actually late 80s, because they, they formed Image Comics in 1992. So, right. you know, late 80s is when Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Mark Bagley, those guys were doing the Spider-Man books. So I'm excited about this. I'm, you know, if, if they're smart, they'll they'll bring in Venom and, and Carnage, because those guys can do a hell of a Venom and Carnage. Right. So. Yeah, no, I, that, that, that cover was was uh, really enticing. So I'm, I'm excited to see what that book looks like. I'm less excited about the J.J. news yeah. because when, when, I, when I think yeah. comic books, I don't think J.J. Abrams. Um, and it's not like he's he's ever had a foot in the Marvel Universe. So I, I have a hard time getting excited about that. It just it seems gimmicky to me. It does. Yeah, yeah. I'll walk, I'll do the preview pages on it and decide then. You know, it could be it's a, it's basically like. Because we see it a lot. We see it with Kevin Smith. I think John Favreau did an Iron Man story, which actually that one wasn't bad. Um, but you well, know, the, we do see the difference this a lot. with the difference with Kevin Smith though is Kevin Smith writes his movies. Well, true, right? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, the, the J.J. Abrams book feels gimmicky, but they have Sarah Pacelli on art, so uh, you know she she's a great artist. Okay, yeah, I, love, I do love Sarah Pacelli. So she she does beautiful work, but I just I, I I'm just having having a hard time getting my my head around that. But the Eric Larson news is fantastic. I got to be honest, I'm shocked. I am shocked that Marvel brought Eric Larson in. You know, he has been so adamant since leaving the company that he will never go back. And never I know say it's never just a again. One shot, but yeah, I mean, it's been yeah. what thirty years almost. That's what James Bond tells us. Never say never again. <laughs> well, I'm sure we will never, never, ever see another DC Vertigo book. I don't know if you saw if you saw that news. You know, I, I have a hard time getting upset about that. Yeah. Because there's so little Vertigo that I enjoy. Um, I think that the, the, the only consistent thing out of Vertigo that I have enjo- enjoyed over the years is uh, Northlanders. Um, oh, yeah. Just just about everything else is not to my liking. See, um, I can point to a few Vertigo books that were really good, but they're all very much in the past. Yeah, well, exactly. Back in we, the heyday we, of Vertigo, right? Exactly. And when you look at uh, books that were really successful under the Vertigo label, like Fables, that was kind of a snapshot in time. You know, that 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 sort of you know genre has, has kind of come and gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just... There's just not a lot there that I've really gone, oh, man, that's my jam, other than Northlanders. I love Northlanders. When I look at Vertigo, the one that jumps out at me was Why the Last Man. But again, that finished a long time ago. Yeah, and see, I didn't – that that wasn't my jam either. I read the first couple of volumes of that and was done. I just – Yeah. So what what they've and so the news we're talking about is that DC has shut down its three major imprints, Vertigo, Zoom and Inc., um, which is funny because Zoom and Ink are, are relatively recent. 
Um, and they but, are rebranding everything as DC, but rebranding by age group. So there's going to be DC Kids, regular DC, and DC Black Label is going to be the mature readers line. So what are they putting Bendis's stuff on? Because Bendis brought his creator on stuff over to DC. So they will still have um, what they're calling their pop-up imprints. So like the Wonder mm. Comics, the Jinx World, those types of things. Gotcha. So, so standard still, Jinx yeah, World. Yeah. So some of that will still exist because those are like what they're they're calling those pop-ups because they're they're not ongoing. Like um, right. Like what's it's uh, the the one from Gerard Way. You know that they're saying that that stuff, Young Animal, that stuff will still yeah. continue. Um, but as far as Vertigo, Zoom, and Ink, you know, those are being shut down as separate imprints. And what I find most interesting about this news is that it seems like DC goes through some line, whereas Marvel may have a big crossover every six months, DC seems to rebrand a whole hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, it, to me, it, it kind of feels a little bit like aimless, almost mm -hmm. like you just launched Zoom and Ink last year, and now right. all of a sudden yep. you're shutting them down. DC lacks identity sometimes. Yeah, I think they're trying to figure it out, right? They're trying to figure out how to, because I think the Vertigo books just don't sell well. But if it's DC, Not people anymore. will see the DC bullet, and yeah. You know. Well, we've seen uh, we've seen changes happen faster, like Swamp Thing getting canceled after one episode for nothing to do with the content. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at, you know, this article on The Verge that talks about the, the DC news mentions Vertigo series like DMZ, Hellblazer, I Zombie, Lucifer, Preacher, The Sandman, Swamp Thing, and Why the Last Man. And all I could think of is none of those are within the last 10 years. Right. Yeah. Right. And don't get me wrong. I don't disparage the quality of the Vertigo books, but no, I, I you know, certainly exactly. the, 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 what, what launched Vertigo, the books like Hellblazer and Swamp Thing and Sandman. Sandman. You know, those yeah. those are not Vertigo books anymore. And those Sandman were what? Has his own 90s? Sandman universe. Uh, those were what in the nineties? Late I 80s, mean, early nineties. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's been a long time. <laughs> Wasn't Constantine a uh, Vertigo for a while? Yeah, I think Hellblazer the was the first. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the first Vertigo book was Hellblazer number one. I could be wrong on that, but. And you know, there's been. I mean, as I said, a lot of that stuff's not to my taste. But I, you cannot deny the quality on the majority of the, of the Vertigo books. And, you know, there was some groundbreaking stuff that happened. I just don't think that Vertigo made a good transition into, you know, the 2000s. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's I think what honestly killed Vertigo is image. Mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 when when creators want to do creator owned work, they'll go to an image or a boom or something like that, because. Yes, Vertigo it is very, very hands-off for the most part, but we've seen in recent years, especially with, you know, the Bat Penis and things like that, that yeah. DC, you know, that Warner Brothers editorial gets involved. Even if you have yeah. a creator-owned book, you can't have certain topics or certain art or whatever, but, you know, you can go to Image and show whatever the hell you want. Just ask um, Howard Chaikin. Well, any corporate entity, you know, that says, oh, we're going to be hands-off is lying to you. You know, any corporate entity that, that, that is structured as a full on corporation will at some point say, eh, we're going to correct your course here. We're going to make this change. We think this is going to be better for the brand. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas image where everybody owns their shit, 
that's I mean, that's where a true creator can go and own his property yeah. and not get, you know, pushed around by the corporate office. But, you know, any any corporation that's set up as, as a as a as a publisher like DC or Marvel, they're going to come in at some point and correct where they feel like a correction is going to be made because that's their responsibility. Their responsibility is to the brand and to their shareholders. Yeah. yeah. And uh I'm going to be honest, that's not always bad. A lot of times it's oh. bad, but I can think of a few creators out there that need a solid editor telling them no. Because when they're doing their creator-owned stuff, they go off the wall and yeah. they need to be reined in. Because they're really good writers, but they need somebody to tell them no. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we're going to talk about a book later on that you know needed more editorial direction. Um you know, so many times creators, even within the corporate space, are such megastars that they don't get the the editorial guidance that they should be getting. And so, no, I absolutely agree. I think that the most successful creator, you know, we always see writers and artists joining up, you know, for uh, creator owned teams. I'd love to see writers, artists and editors joining up for creative creative teams because you get a good editor with a, with a with a great writer i mean the, the sky's the limit you know you you really need somebody who can objectively challenge that superstar talent uh you know it's it's george lucas and star wars all over again is, is a, a lot of this kinds of stuff and, and again we'll talk more about this later so foreshadowing the editor really drives the direction of the book, right? So, you know, should, they, should drive, yeah, yeah, should drive, right? And so, you know, we we when you have an editor like Julia Schwartz, you know, who who brought yeah. in Denny O'Neill on on Batman and and the Green Lantern and Green Arrow books, like you well, know, Archie Goodwin. Yeah, I mean, Archie Goodwin, yeah, there, exactly. There, there are legendary editors in this business mm-hmm. who who you know I, you hear. You know, writers will frequently say, oh, the the editor just didn't get me and yada, yada. And sure, just like there are hack writers, there are hack editors, right? But there are editors who elevate the game, who push and challenge the talent. And that's what you got to have. You got to have somebody who's going to question, who's going to push, who's going to to challenge uh, the artist and the writer to do their best work. That's what you've got to have. And I really do think it's a three person. Ideally it's a three person team and you yeah. rarely see that particularly in superstar matchups. And again, we're going to talk about one here in a minute, but before we do, <laughs> um, a little lead in to talking about Superman year one, we're just going to keep you waiting for that conversation. That's right. Uh, because speaking of Superman, last weekend Wayne was not on the podcast because he was out in Metropolis, Illinois for the big Metropolis celebration, making the moves on Erica Durant's. Was it was it that you were rocketed from your dying planet and you know, you crash landed and, and went to Metropolis to work as a reporter in a major metropolitan newspaper? Is that what happened, Wayne? Wayne. Hmm. Wayne's not answering the question. Oh, perhaps because he's protecting his secret identity. Mm. Mm. Or perhaps mm. because he somehow dropped from the podcast. Yeah, that seems to be it. I th- well, you know, maybe I've offended him with the question. Oh, perhaps. Yeah. I think that's that's perhaps maybe I should answer as Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like you what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, uh I this is my Wayne voice. Oh, so, uh, I got to hear so, the Wayne so voice. 
Yeah. So this is my Wayne voice. Um, so I, I went to uh, Metropolis and, uh, you know, while on my way to Metropolis, I read the Superman novel. <laughs> and uh, and when I when I got to Metropolis, I walked around a lot and boy, did my feet hurt. <laughs> so, so I sat down and, and, did, and played with some Legos. <laughs> and that. <laughs> and that was Aaron's impression of Wayne's visit to Metropolis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think we lost Wayne. He, he, he's been sucked up into the ether. Oh, well, he was snapped he away into the Phantom Zone. Oh, the fan. Oh, yeah, that's more appropriate since we're about to talk about Superman year one. Superman year one. You know, the 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 much ballyhooed, the the promoted, the the excitement was palpable about this this huge team up between John Romita Jr. and Frank Miller to bring us a redefining Superman story of the young Superman of a, of a Superman origin for the ages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I think I was the only one on the podcast, particularly excited about this book um, because neither Wayne nor Aaron are, are big fans of Frank Miller or John Romita Jr. In recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to give it a shot, right? They, the last time these guys teamed up, um, they did a they did a DK three one shot, which wasn't half bad. But the last time they really teamed up was that Daredevil Man Without Fear miniseries. That's one of my favorite Daredevil stories. That's a good story. It's a good um, story. But you know, so uh, Superman Year One came out this week. Uh, Frank Miller, John Romita Jr., Danny Meeky, Alex Sinclair. Um, it's funny because you mentioned an editor, and I don't see an editor listed on <laughs> the, uh, the the credits page. I'm sure there is one, but. Um, so this is part of DC's Black Label. It was an oversized uh, prestige format, even though we all read it digitally. Aaron, and I'm sorry we lost Wayne for this conversation. What did you think? Well, you know, the, the first thing I'll say is I have not been a fan of John Romita Jr.'s uh, artwork since he's been over to DC. I also did not care for it over at, at, in his later years at Marvel. But uh, his artwork in this book, for the most part, was pretty good. Yeah, for the um, most part. I, I will say that there are s- some exaggerated head sizes in the book. <laughs> and I kept feeling like, particularly like Superman's parents, uh, you know, Mom, Pa, Kent, I kept expecting them to fall over because their heads were so fucking big. But uh, for the most part, I enjoyed the artwork in the book. Um, I gotta say, my dislike of the book started early on. Okay. Um and it was the, you know, Frank Miller written narration of baby Clark during the destruction of Krypton. Because, you know, we're, we're, as is par for the Superman story, um, young Kal-El is rocketed from the dying planet Krypton uh, to Earth. But in this scenario, instead of being an infant and, you know, having no no memories, maybe just glimpses, he's got full on voiceover narrated memories of what's going on on Krypton, you know, with all the carnage, his parents running around, their conversation. I mean, and it's all from the perspective of baby Cal. And again, it's not from... You know, as it's it's I think it would these pages would have been more effective 
without the narration, with yeah. it just the child watching the images. I it's one of those scenarios where I think less would have been more in terms of what was written on the page because we all know the Krypton story, yeah. right? Yeah, um, very very poor narration. Wayne's oh back. look, Wayne's back. <laughs> um, he was rocketed back. The Thanos has been unsnapped. <laughs> um, so yeah. I do want to say something about that narration before we move on from this topic, because it's when when Frank Miller wrote Dark Knight or or even the Daredevil books, the original his run, his narr- he, he's always been heavy in narration, but it's usually first person. Now he's, you know, ever since Sin City, he's leaned more into this second ish person narration that's like this biased narrator that flows in and out of like, this is what baby Cal is thinking, but he's also telling baby Cal what to think. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this odd, odd narration that doesn't work for a Superman book. No, it was really bad. And I personally hate the idea of Kal-El remembering Krypton. There's one of the things that makes Superman and Supergirl different is that Superman doesn't remember Krypton. He right. may learn things about it, but his family is the Kents, and he, he, you know, what his memory of childhood is is growing up in a farm in Kansas. That's something that shapes the character versus if, Supergirl, who has memories. And if Clark has memories of, as an infant that are just so clear, that means that Kryptonians, absent a a, a yellow sun, are still superhuman, right? Because the idea is that under a red sun, they're more or less just like us, except with advanced technology, right? You know, they're just more advanced than us, but their physiology is ever bit the same. Having Clark experience this and be able to narrate it, um, you know, what what and being able to conject on on what his parents are feeling and their reactions and that kind of thing really indicates that they're not like us at all. He's already started off ahead. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I found that really annoying. Yeah. I was frustrated with the beginning right there. But the first time the book pissed me off <laughs> was uh, when Jonathan Kent is holding him and it describes a, a gentle warmth makes his brain feel like it's floating. The boy oh. coos, please. This is not hostile. Let him take you to your new home. Let him think this is his idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, that. That just straight off pissed me off. Yeah, the, the, the idea. alien mind control. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Kent was a good person who took on a baby that he found. I didn't like that Martha wasn't there when he found it either. This is the yeah. first incarnation of the story that I've seen where it wasn't Martha that said, we're going to take him home and he's going to become our son. I had huge issues with that. Well, I also found it interesting that upon meeting baby Kal-El, Martha sees the baby and says, those eyes of his, it's like they've seen worlds upon worlds, wonders beyond all reckoning. It's like they can see right through me. It's like, what What the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, No, I heard you guys were talking the, uh, the art. And so I am, I don't dislike John Ramada Jr. I just don't like him for Superman. I think he, you know, his stories are better for something like a daredevil or something that's a darker but I look at this art of Jonathan holding baby Kal-El and baby Kal-El looks like a cancer patient. Yeah. With his little, with his little uh, head scarf, head cap thing going on. 
Yeah. I just do not like this art for Superman at all. Yeah, I did, it, it I did just, think his Martha looks pretty good. I, I, their their heads aren't the right size. <laughs> I, I found I I really had a hard time with with their heads. Um, I you know one of the things that John Byrne did when when he reimagined Superman for the eighties is he established he, he answered a question that that had been haunting people for forever is how in the hell can you control a super baby right. You because know, back in the in the in the 50s and the 60s, Super Baby was a thing. There were stories, you know, about the Super Baby. Well, he had Superman grow into his powers through puberty and, you know, uh, uh, you know, and it, later into his teens, you know, where he had some some uh, intellectual control over over, you know, these abilities. Um, this book brings back. Super baby. You know, we see the baby doing, uh, you know, crazy things. We see, uh, you know, he, he sets the, the kitchen drapes on fire with his heat vision. Right. Um, you know, as, as mother is feeding him food that is too hot. Uh, so he sets the kitchen on fire. You know, we see him bouncing and eventually flying, uh, you know, much like man of steel, we see Jonathan Kent giving him, some less than wise guidance, right? Um, you know, Mom Pa Kent in the '80s book were probably a little too wise, but of course we had the benefit of them being older when they when they get him. You know, we we see in the new Fifty Two, Mom Pa are younger. They seem younger here, uh, but in the in the '80s book by John Byrne, we see an older couple. You know, probably in their 40s or so, who 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 uh, rescue this kid, and you know have some wisdom in the world and are good people to begin with, and so they're really able to impart uh, those life lessons and morals into uh, Kalel. And I really did feel like this this book was heavily influenced by Man of Steel, the film, um, and and that bothered me a great deal. See, I don't know, like. I, I know get, you're a man of steel apologist. I, I am, and actually, I, yeah, I am a man of steel apologist, and I liked Kevin Costner's portrayal of Pa Kent in that film. I feel like this is Frank Miller's how he his impression of how Middle America lives. You know, they they have. Don't get me wrong; not every scene in this book is painful, but for the most part, the characters. Like the, there's way too much narration, way too much narration. Um, you know the the interaction uh, mostly between the the Kent family isn't great. Like the 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 voices seem off to me. Um, there's a dinner talk that's actually not that bad, where they're sitting at dinner and you know Clark's asking, "Do I just flatten the bullies?" And Ma Kent's like, "I won't have any words of violence at my table." And then Pa Kent says, first you talk to them, then you flatten them. Like, that's an okay scene. Like, okay. Like, did Frank Miller actually write that? Because um, <laughs> it seems almost, you know, too good for, for the rest of this book. It, you know, so yeah, I definitely don't see the Man of Steel comparison with the, the advice. I mean, Man of Steel, I, I am not an apologist because I think it was a, a horrible injustice to the Kents in Man of Steel. I don't see that level level of horrible advice in here. Uh, Ma Kent is overly worried. You know, she's overly doting, worried that he's going to get hurt when he's 
already shown that he's, uh, you know, his powers. Pa Kent is teaching moderation but standing strong. Well, I don't think any of the conversations or advice was particularly good. It wasn't so against character like Man of Steel was. You know, they don't tell him to just stand by and do nothing while people are being hurt. They don't, you know, it, it's not quite that level of completely wrong. So one of the uh, big themes that emerges almost midway in the book is uh, the subject of bullying. And, you know, Clark is in a social group of kids who you know, are the kids who don't fit in. Uh, you know, back when when, uh, you know, I was in high school, they would have been characterized as nerds or geeks back before nerds and geeks were, were, were a cool thing. Um, and they are frequently referred to as weirdos. In fact, that's what their social group is called. Uh, I truly believe that weirdos was an edit that somebody put in over at uh, DC yeah, Comics. One hundred percent feel that way. I feel like another word was being used. I want to say I, I truly feel like the word faggot was probably used by Frank Miller because that's what it felt like. Not to say that these kids were, were gay, even though I do. Uh, there, there is at least one of the kids that is. Yeah. Uh, but, but I feel like you know it's that. 1980s use of the word faggot that's just, you know, dripping with hate. And I felt like that's what the word that was used. I truly believe that because that is how we, the way weirdo was employed. Because, you know, you call somebody a weirdo today, big fucking deal. Yeah. But there was, there, there was, uh, the nuance of how it was delivered really rang to me as, you know, faggot. Um, Which I wouldn't put beyond Miller, right? I mean, it, it no, it, feels that, seemed, that, that way. seems straight out of his wheelhouse, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and the level of bullying here without, like, I don't see that level happening with that many kids and that level of injury without police being involved. Yeah, well, and this is the thing. It, it is stated at least twice in the book that the teachers are afraid of these high school bullies. Never explained why, right? And, you know... Because yeah, they're not drawn like they're big, giant, you know, strong well, jobs None of them anything. have powers. None of them seem to be connected. There's no reason uh, for t that, that were shown for the teachers to be afraid of the bullies. You know, when I was in school, there was a lot of bullying that went on, and I was bullied. Um, and there was even a day, and and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, that you know I am sitting in gym class, and I get in a fight with this kid. Absolutely, this is one of the rare occasions where I didn't pick the fight. I was I was you know just minding my own business. Kid two years older than me comes over and beats the living shit out of me, smashes my head into the floor of the gym, and knocks me unconscious. Gym coach watched the whole thing, did not a goddamn thing. Now, he wasn't afraid of that guy. He just didn't fucking care. And, I mean, I just needed some kind of explanation in this book why the teachers weren't doing anything. And that's never that never lands here. And because the book moves beyond high school, I don't think we're ever going to get an explanation for that. Yeah, and I wanted to see – I like this idea of Clark realizing that the way to stop things like this is the power of the press. And that being kind of a – that was one – aspect I did like at least a little bit that that would have been the inspiration for him becoming a reporter but it was told so poorly yeah. if they would have actually built up to that and he would have been writing with Lana and 
then they do their big release and you see the kids, you know, like the police or something, any sort of consequence to the kids to show that was effective. And then I could see that being a, you know, a point in the character development, but yeah. that didn't happen. No. And let's talk about one of the the harshest scenes of the book briefly. Um, like there's an attempted gang rape in yeah. this book. Yeah. And I'm like, like, why? <laughs> why, well, why did it, it need, why did the story need to go there? It struck me that not only were they not, okay. So they, they start off with, they, they pretend that they're Clark so that they can get the evidence of that, that Lana has of all the bullying. Right. So they take the, they, they, they take the evidence and they uh, brutalize her a little bit. They push her down, you know, don't let her up. And then they begin to, to threaten her as sexual assault. And it almost sounds like, so we're going to we're going to knock you around. We're going to rape you. And then we're going to kill you in Smallville. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm just like, oh, my God, um, this is a level of horror uh, that I was not prepared for in my Superman origin story set in Smallville, Kansas. Yeah. Um, and I know terrible things happen everywhere, but it just. I, I and, and I feel like I'm arguing like Wayne about you know uh, Man of Steel the film. Uh, I, it had no place in this book. Bad things can happen in Smallville, but this level of horror, particularly from children, should not. You know, I, I just I, I really had a problem with that. Yeah, I it felt like this story was all over the place. It didn't feel concise. It didn't feel like an editor touched it in any way it went to extremes the characters didn't have consistent voices any of them there's no subtlety and to it right there there's no, no subtlety. you can tell all. that frank miller loves superman but i think his his the subtlety in his writing is is long gone like every everything has to hit you like a ton of bricks every scene has to you know just punch you in the face well and it, it did it did one of my worst crimes against comics when telling an origin story of how in the world does anyone in Smallville not know that Clark Kent is super? Because they already, yeah, they talk about his powers, right? They talk about rumors. They talk about all these things they've seen him do. And it just, it's obvious that everybody knows there's something weird about this kid. And then Superman shows up and nobody puts it together. Well, and even one of the neighbors goes, I think that was the Kent boy that just flew by. I mean, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. Like the worst kept secret identity stories are those are the ones that always bug me. Yeah. It's like I can I want that suspension of disbelief when it comes to secret identities. I want to believe they can keep them secret. But when you tell me origin stories where they're showing off and where people are there are rumors and people are talking about, you know, the powers. I can't buy that. Yeah. Well, and for a book called Superman year one, we see a number of years pass in this first right. issue. Like this isn't, I think they're using that it's like year one like, terminology wrong. Right. Like, yeah. like Batman year one. No, no, that was, that was within a year. Like that, 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 that made sense. Um, so one more thing to talk about this book, at least I only have one more thing, which is the, 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 the first time that I, I feel this has been introduced into the Superman lore, um, which is that Clark Kent, Kent joins the Navy. Yeah, yeah that, that, 
Yeah, that was going to be the next one I mentioned. I hated it. Uh-huh. it. It doesn't make sense for the character. To- I completely get why somebody growing up in the Midwest and that with those powers would actually do it. It kind of makes a lot of sense, but it just it doesn't fit. When you have that level of powers and you want to travel the world, you don't need to join the Navy in particular. And why is the ocean calling to him? Versus, you know, the world. and Yeah, that was weird to me, right? I mean, because he makes that whole thing like, the ocean's calling me, so I'm joining the Navy. Yeah, but okay. why, why would the ocean call to you? Why, and, why not the but, sky? You know, right. join the yeah. Air Force. Yeah. But, you know, maybe, I, you know what? We have not seen a Lori Lamara story in forever. I mean, True. it's been decades, I think, since we've seen a Lori Lamara story. Maybe we're going to get one. I think we Maybe are. that's part of the Navy thing. I think we are. And, you know, Superman Birthright introduced that Clark Kent joined, um, like, he was doing missionary work overseas. Yeah. Yeah. It was the equivalent of, uh, like, the Salvation Army. Yeah. Like, you know, he was a human rights activist. And mm-hmm. so, you know, totally, you know, so this is, you know, a different take on, on that. I'm not opposed to the Navy. It's just an unusual choice. For the character, but like you said, it, it may be just so they can lead into this, you know, Lori Lamara storyline. But why couldn't he have been like, you know, uh, it, couldn't he have been a, uh, a, a a deckhand on, you know, a merchant vessel or something? I mean, that's what I don't understand is why does he need to sign up? Well, and you know, I also don't know how Lori Lamaris and and spoilers. Yes, that does happen in issue two. Um, oh, does it? Yeah. Uh, I don't understand how that's a defining moment for a Superman Year One book either. Well, it is defining in uh, the old, I mean, like in the Silver Age, right? I mean, yeah, nah, that, yeah. Lori Lamaris is huge prior to John Byrne. Huge. Eh, good point. Good point. I mean, he's, he, this John is clearly Byrne, informed by that. But yeah, in the John, John Byrne run, she was one of the first people that had any kind of powers that he met. So that was also defining she was like him she was different yeah and they met in college what is my recollection of uh how they met well here's the question are any of us actually going to find out i don't know if Lori, La- I, I have been wanting <laughs> a, a, a Lori lamar story for a long time i just hate the idea that frank miller is going to tell it yeah i this story made me angry i don't want to be angry about Lori lamaris too because yeah. i like her you know it's yeah. frustrating in that it's Superman, and it, it's almost like watching a train wreck. Like, I kind of want to see where the story yeah. goes, <laughs> right? But it's eight yeah. fucking dollars. Yeah. Um, well, and I mean, I don't know if you had this feeling. I mean, it, it's eight bucks, and it's a long-ass book. It is uh, 67 pages, right? Mm-hmm. And boy, I felt every single one of those pages. Yeah, because there's kept, so much narration. And I kept going, when is this book going to fucking end? It's kind of like watching Jessica Jones season two. <laughs> I mean, when is this going to fucking end? <laughs> you know, uh, I, 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 I've been watching Jessica Jones this week while I was on the road because season three just came out and I'm nowhere near done or was nowhere near done with season two. And you know, I, I'm, I'm quoting Paul as we're going, could have told this story in four episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a terrible season, but I digress. I hated Superman year one. I, I, I truly with every part of my body, I hated this book. Uh, I think Frank Miller is the very wrongest person to be writing this story. Uh, I, 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 I can let some of the John Romita Jr. art go, 
but wow, this story is bad. Yeah, John Romita Jr. was not a good fit for the story, but if it were a good well, it's not a good fit for the character, I'll say. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if the story were good, I could have looked past that. It yeah. just it kept making me angry. And it's not just that I want my version of Superman. I'm open to different interpretations. I'm open to different origins. But this just wasn't a good origin. It wasn't a good story. It wasn't subtle. It was hitting you over the head with the plot yeah. hammer. And yeah, yeah. no, well, I hated yeah. the book. It's with an editor <laughs> and, and uh, you know because honestly with a couple of trimmed pages and a hell of a lot less narration mm-hmm. this actually probably would have been a solid book um you know i think if, if you removed half of the word balloons in this book and took out like the attempted rape and murder of lana lang it, you'd have a, a more effective book honestly yeah yeah no absolutely it it would have felt more like superman and i understand part of of part of what you try and do in these stories is push the envelope on what we define as the character. But I do think there are, there are iconic core elements of the character that you just can't change and keep him the same. And I don't, I I think small, he can encounter these kinds of things where someone is, is assaulted, almost raped. The intent was, you know, was to kill her. Right. You just can't do that in Smallville, and you certainly can't do that with with Lana. Yeah, Smallville has to be that wholesome upbringing that creates the character. Right. And this is not a wholesome upbringing. And I'll add one more thing about that scenario is that 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 part of the story is so tone deaf – to the type of stories we write today. You know, this is this is all but refrigerating the character, right? Uh, Because – she has no agency in saving herself. She never even gets off a punch or a kick. And I'm sorry, you grew up on a farm. You probably know how to defend yourself a little bit. Um, yeah, she's not going to be able to beat this herd of guys. But, I mean, she is completely a victim from the jump. Um, well, and let's and not even so, – go ahead. And, and Clark has to come in and then, you know, subdue everybody. And, you know, has to has to handle the situation where they are uh, not killed or permanently damaged. Um, and so he, he's over narrating all of that kind of thing. And again, he doesn't learn the lesson about what happened to his friends earlier, you know, where he you know intervenes with the bullies before and they just came down harder on the quote weirdos. How does how how does something bad not happen to Lana while he's out of town? Well, I mean, that feels like, that feels like something that's going to happen because, well, now that your boyfriend Clark is gone, now we can settle up. And those kind of people, people who are assaulters, that's what they do. Yeah, I don't know. You know, but let's not even bring up the fact that at the that Clark, Clark basically asked her out on a date right after. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, I know. I know you almost got raped. So let me court you, Lana Lang. <laughs> yeah, and who says court, by the way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with the idea of this is what Frank Miller thinks the middle, you know, yeah. the Midwest is like. No, I think As someone right. living in the Midwest, that's not what it's like. Well, and it's hard to tell the time, period. You know, this could very much be the origin story of the Superman from The Dark Knight Returns. Um, 
but because there's no there's no cell phones, there's no technology. So this could, well, except there is a goth kid, and I don't think they had goth kids in the '60s. So, okay, yeah. scrap that. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. And I, I I gotta say, I think I read the second issue when it goes on sale. I can't imagine spending eight dollars on this again. Yeah, because you're just gonna be pissed off. You know it. Oh my god. Oh my god, I've been mad all week about this book. <laughs> well, since Wayne's back, and before we get into our final book, um, Wayne... I told you everything you needed to know about his trip to Metropolis, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> How was your trip to Metropolis, Wayne? So, as usual, I had a ball because I love it there. Uh, this year, though, it was it rained all three days, uh, so attendance was way down, which is not a good thing for that tiny little town because... Uh, with the flooding recently, their Harris has been down for about three months. And that's basically what the town does for its money is the celebration and Harris. So not a good time for the town. What's Harris? Uh, is that a casino? Yes, casino. Okay. Uh, but like I said I had a ball with it because I always do. Uh, there weren't nearly as many vendors. I did go to the Q&A for Erica Durant and Helen Slater. And... Uh, Erica had a bunch of stories about Tom Welling and her time on Smallville and like all the practical jokes that would get played on the sets and such. Uh, they both talked about when they met uh, Margot Kidder. Uh, and for one of them, Margot just kind of walked up. It was uh, Erica. Margot walked up and just puts her hand on her shoulder and said, uh, you did great, kid. And it was there were a few interesting stories there overall. Uh, my takeaways, the things that I came back with, uh, my Lego collection increased by Eradicator, Cyborg Superman, Superboy from uh, like with the jacket and Superman in the black suit. So if I can find a steel figure, I'll have uh, all of the death and return of Superman figures. Uh, I went to the auction and it was so it was interesting watching the auction go because they have all of this memorabilia out there. Uh and there were things I was bidding on, things I wasn't. And, like, one thing, they had a box, cardboard box that held trading cards from the 60s. Uh, and it had, like, a handwritten 12 cents on the box. Went for $175. Wow. For an empty cardboard box. And it's just like, <laughs> I, I am floored. As, like, these are a lot of George Reeves article, like, uh artifacts and things that were going and you had your Kirk Allen fans that were there. What I dropped money on was uh, there was a guy that made custom figures out of the, uh, the superpower supermans. So he would paint them, he would carve them. And I got uh, the justice Lord Superman. I got cyborg Superman and I got bizarro that were all custom figures. Uh, then I got a, really beautiful but pictures just cannot do it justice shadow box of the death of superman where it's the that iconic picture of the flag that his cape like flapping like a flag but it's cut out in like 3d oh, so nice. it's, it's like layered which pictures don't do those justice but it just looks amazing uh, i ended up dropping about 300 or so at the auction well i hope you use paul's card Oh, of course. Yeah, no, that's the way. That's the way to do that. <laughs> he doesn't leave so that, without it. <laughs> that was actually the downfall of uh, how much money I spent. Was I? Uh, I bought a few things early on, and 
I went ahead and cashed out to see how much cash I had left. And I made a comment of, uh, you know, it's a good thing you guys don't take cards. And they're like, oh, we take cards. <laughs> like, no. It's like, I probably should not have known that. <laughs> then the bidding began for real. So was your wife with you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Recipe for disaster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. Yeah, so I... Paul and I read uh, Warlord of Mars Attacks, a team-up about uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and the Mars Attacks franchise uh, from Dynamite Comics this week. Paul, Dynamite, Dynamite! Can I just say I'm hovering over the buy button on this waiting for your review? Because <laughs> I did not see this in the weekly books, and uh, – I, I'm very curious. This is either going to be fun or a train wreck. Well, it's written by Jeff Parker, friend of the podcast, Jeff Parker, and uh, illustrated by Dean Coates, K-O-T-Z. And, uh, Paul, I'm really interested to hear what you think. You know, I, <laughs> I, I liked the first half of this book. <laughs> With the stuff that happens on Mars? Yeah, the stuff that actually happens on Mars. Um, you know, so it's John Carter fighting the Mars attacks, Martians on Mars, you know, Barsoom and, and, you know, and, um, damn, what's his wife? Oh, Deja and Deja Thor sacrifices herself to, to, you know, to, to, to take out the, the Martian menace. Mm -hmm. And then it switches to earth. And, you know, unlike Frank Miller's other book, this is, you know, Frank, unlike Superman Year One, this is very much a modern day Earth, which I'm like, oh, I, I've not really seen a John Carter story set in modern day. But, you know, the, people have, you know, um, laptops and, and cell phones like this yeah, is very wait, much wait, modern it's set day. at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and they're getting, you know, uh, a live feed in from their new Mars lander. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's set very much. In fact, you know, one of the people there in Mission Control is someone who won the Internet contest mm -hmm. to come and be, you know, there at the landing. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> they're 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 scrolling through the digital images as they come in. And here come two of the uh, the as the Barsoomians uh, refer to them, the moonheads. Yeah. Uh, two of the moonhead Martians come walking up, you know, and destroy the uh, the lander. And the next thing you know, we've got saucers in the sky and all hell's breaking breaking loose. And uh, I, I won't you know get go into too much detail, but you know it's the scientists fleeing the scene and looking for refuge. And we get a cutaway to the next issue in which we see a figure that we can only assume is the uh, Earth John Carter laying in some kind of hibernation, suspended animation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it looks like and I got to say, I was pleasantly surprised in the series because I just assumed it was all going to take place on Barsoom. So right? you're pleasantly surprised. I was actually disappointed by that. I I, I think you're I, I suspect we'll get to see some of back and forth. I think that yeah. I think the series will probably be much as we saw in this issue where parts of it happen on Barsoom and parts of it happen on Earth. I'm really curious as to what they do with, you know, Taryn John Carter. Uh, on on Earth, like on yeah. in modern day times, it's something yeah. I've never seen before. 
I, I can't say that I have either. And so I'm super, I'm, I'm super interested in that. Um, I think the book is beautifully drawn. It is. Uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed the artwork. I, I, you know, I think that there are some characters that are difficult to draw in a dynamic, interesting fashion. And one of those are the uh, Tharks of Barsoom, you know, like Tars Tarkas. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought they did a brilliant job uh, illustrating Tars Tarkas. Um, I will say the 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 image of John Carter. Uh, <laughs> I think that he is probably, you know, uh, more more, uh, period accurate, you know, with those long side chops. What, yeah. Yeah. He's probably more period accurate than, uh, than we're used to, or than I'm used to, cause I've really not been reading the, the, uh, dynamite series recently, but, uh, you know, he almost, there, there was a part of it. I was like, you know, is that Bruce Campbell? <laughs> you know, uh, I was like, is this an yeah, ash? To a certain extent. Yeah. He's, he's, he does kind of have that ash look to him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I got a real kick out of, out of him, you know, flying one of the flying saucers. Um, and I, I'm just I'm interested to see where this thing's going to go. I think Jeff Parker has a nice tone for the book. Um, I think that the that the uh, Moonhead Martians are mm. uh, are interestingly illustrated. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of them. I, I, I got a kick out of the book. I'm in for number two. It's definitely different than I expected. And that's not yeah. in a, in, you know saying that it's bad. It's just definitely different. I, I wasn't yeah. expecting the modern day. And so when it initially, I will say, admittedly, initially, it turned me off. I'm like, uh, but, you know, I, I, if I'm willing to, to, to continue because I do. I did enjoy the first half of the book quite a bit. So, like I said, and maybe with another shot, knowing that this is bringing John Carter into modern day. Uh, you know, I'll I'll have a, a bit more of a, you know, I'll be a, a little bit more understanding of, of where the story's going. But it just kind of caught me off guard because yeah, I've I, just never, I, you know, I, I always assume, I always think of John Carter as a period piece. Right. He's a period piece and he's always on Barsoom. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's just, that's where he is. And so that's what I found so surprising. Like, well, this should be interesting to see how that shakes out. I, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm always entertained by Jeff Parker's writing. So, you know, if with a different writer, I might have sat back and gone, eh, I don't know. But yeah, with, with a different Parker, writer, I would not have picked this up. But Jeff yeah. Parker is what drew, drew me in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm in. I'm down for number two. All right. I clicked the buy button. Ah, he did it. He sold one. I, we'll we'll uh, look for our uh, our fee from Dynamite anytime now. Our three cents. And he did now. <laughs> Three cents. This is comics, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, what's coming out next week? Uh, not a whole hell of a lot, actually. You know, we, we have the, the latest issue of Marvel Comics Presents set in the 90s that features Ghost Rider, Deadpool and Wolverine. Um, we also have from Marvel Comics, we've got the conclusion of War of the Realms. Uh, which none of us have been reading, I think, since issue one or two. Uh, but it is leading into the new King Thor story that I'm looking forward to. And uh, interesting, um, written and drawn by Tim Seeley and Jim Terry. There's a book, uh, well, we, we, we've all heard of Hack Slash. There is a Hack Slash The Crow crossover. Oh, dear God. Next week. They've the been crossover like... that no one demands. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, after they canceled the series of Hackslash and ended it, they keep bringing it back for every single crossover you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Hackslash crosses over with Winnie the Pooh. 
<laughs> they did an Horror Archie people. crossover at one point, I think. Uh, I guess they're trying to keep it, you know, I guess the ongoing story's done, so they just kind of want to keep it out there. But that that's pretty much the, the major releases that are coming out next week. Very exciting. Ish. Ish. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that'll give me time to read my uh, freshly downloaded copy of Elseworlds Superman Volume 2, which was on sale this week uh, at Gone uh, Comixology. So. All right. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast. Podcast.